0: Welcome to the Untapped Philanthropy Podcast.
1: We're your hosts, Flux's co-founder, Corinne Mitchell, and Neon One's Tim Sarantonio. We've spent our career learning how to leverage technology and data in the social sector to better connect and serve our collective causes, constituents, and communities.
0: In this podcast series, we profile leaders, public figures, philanthropists, and industry experts to explore the fascinating intersection of funding, technology and policy. We're here to analyze the most formative topics and trends that shape the present and future of philanthropy.
1: Hello everyone. Today's an exciting episode. Focus on benchmarks, nonprofits, data. There's a lot here and we can definitely lean into all the tactical things that people can do with data. Which there are a lot, and we're definitely gonna be talking about that, especially specific to the new report that we're gonna dive into today. But we also wanna look at this through the lens of technology. Yes, we'll touch on even artificial intelligence, Ooh. which is so hot right now. So, so hot. hot. Mm. <laughs> and 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 but we're gonna look at this through the lens of of how can this be accessible and, and equitable for everybody to to kind of use and understand. So uh Corinne. You know, yeah. what are you excited about? For I
0: this? mean, this is the good stuff. It's where we're taking all of this concept and theory that we hear about, we're throwing it into an execution. You know, I think the best thing we can do is bring in people like Abby Jarvis to join us today to kind of untangle this Gordian knot. Abby is a senior content manager at Neon with Tim. And uh, she is a self professed, I love this, nonprofit nerd, an avid hiker, tropical gardener. As someone in Hawaii, I can be like, yes. Get behind that, and great follow Instagram if
1: you know her. So, so
0: yeah, a fairy tale enthusiast, which I can get behind all of these things. So, Abby, thank you so much for joining us today. So excited to have you!
2: Definitely, I'm really excited to be here. All right, do
0: a little intro for us. What brought you to uh, philanthropy? How are you arriving to us today, and what lens are you bringing to the conversation? <laughs>
2: Uh, Well, I've I've been in the nonprofit tech industry for a little over 10 years at this point, which is really wild to say. Uh, And I've been at Neon One for a little over a year. So uh, when I started in this industry, my job was to manage social media and to start a blog. Uh, I quickly learned that I don't love social media marketing, but I do love um, industry research and sharing that research in a way that helps nonprofits Connect with their communities and really just make a bigger impact in the world. And I fell in love with it ten years ago. I'm still in love with that a decade later.
1: So one of the things that that you know, Abby, we talk about internally at Neon One is the kind of moments of generosity, mm. and because because those stick with people. It's not about giving; it's about the the f- emotional feelings that people have. So, what's one? moment of generosity that stands out to you in your career your personal life this is something we ask everybody here but you're a little bit more intimately familiar why we ask this because (laughs) you know we this is kind of our thing at neon right but but what let's hear about yours
2: So I thought about this for a while, and there were so many things that I could talk about, but the one that stuck out to me most was a couple years ago, my husband and I were invited to participate in a peer-to-peer campaign that happens every year, and it raises money for an organization here in my hometown, uh, Lakeland, Florida, called Lakeland Volunteers in Medicine. Uh, they're a nonprofit clinic and they do a tremendous service in our community. So to raise money for this campaign, uh, Dave and I ran an event at a local pub and it was really cool. We had like a laptop set up, we had talking points and we were really just spending time with our friends and family who came out to support us and to to donate to this campaign. But watching our friends and then other patrons that we didn't know come together in this neighborhood pub to raise money for that cause was really beautiful. And the kind of the crowning moment of it was a few weeks later, I found out that one of the people who attended that event and donated, discovered this nonprofit through that event and ended up getting healthcare that they didn't have access to as a result of that campaign. So watching someone not only support a great cause because they were our friends and they wanted to be supportive, but Actually, like get some pretty life-changing services was really beautiful.
1: That's really beautiful and and one of the things that stands out about that story, Abby, is that connection that you're able to 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 make with that and to also introduce other people to it. And a lot of times, these are seen at the ground level. People know that this type of stuff is is happening. But when you start to scale up and you start to look at things en mass, that those nuances are lost. And what I really loved about the email report that we're going to be talking about and unpacking today is you kind of get both. Mm-hmm. And we 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 looked at the landscape of email specifically, and I'm going to ask you to kind of unpack why we did that for us. But one of the things that I I feel we're lacking and Corinne, I'd love to kind of hear your insights on this too. Is when we're doing sector research, one of two things ends up unfortunately happening now. One is that we're looking at for profit data and making nonprofit operational decisions based off of that when we should be looking at nonprofit specific data. And then the other piece is that it's not right sized, that things like impact, things like effectiveness, Things like engagement are very through the lens of the 3% of nonprofits that make more than $5 million a year. And so there's these discrepancies and inconsistencies that you start to kind of make these downstream assumptions and interpretations. And I think it's critical to identify these issues early on when we're designing reports and things like that. Why, Abby, when we were maybe tell us a little bit about the report itself. Mm -hmm. and why it was important that we approached it for nonprofits having this type of data specific to email, specific to the types of size organizations that we looked at. Tell us a little bit about the report and why we did it this way.
2: So the report represents every email that went out through our systems at, at Neon One in 2022. And of course, we did some data cleanup to remove some outliers that could throw off the results. But we looked at campaign performance. So we looked at um, performance benchmarks that you would normally find in any kind of email messaging system. And then we went a step further. And we broke down each of those benchmarks into two individual benchmarks. So one of those focuses on small nonprofits, and those nonprofits have lists of between 250 and 999 people. And then we looked at large nonprofits that have lists of a thousand contacts or more. And we decided to do it that way because, as Tim, you kind of mentioned, there's a real need not only for nonprofit specific data in the sector but for nonprofit specific data that as much as is possible speaks to the unique needs of small nonprofits and larger nonprofits so we chose to focus on that kind of for for two reasons and the first reason of course it sounds really silly to say but nonprofits are not for profits and The people who are engaging with nonprofit organizations don't do so for the same reasons they engage with for-profits. So it would be kind of futile for a nonprofit to try to reach their audiences in the same way for-profits do. So when I buy something online or if I pay for a service, I'm not connecting with that company on an emotional level. But when I donate to my favorite nonprofits, that is both a practical and an emotional engagement. And because my emotions are tied to that nonprofit, I am much more willing to engage with them than I am willing to engage with a for-profit. And I think that's true for most donors. So we'll read nonprofit newsletters. We'll read their blog articles. We'll engage with them on social media. I'll give them my phone number, but I won't do any of those things with a for-profit. And nonprofits are kind of universally like that. Their their supporters engage with them very differently. So when nonprofits borrow their engagement cues and their best practices from for-profits or even those, those big nonprofits, organizations with whom people won't do things like read newsletters or open emails or provide additional information, they're missing out on an opportunity to engage their community. And then you and I, Tim, have talked about this pretty extensively. But like you said, a lot of the nonprofit-specific data does come from those very few organizations that are processing millions of dollars online. And at least I see a lot of discouragement and a lot of stress in those small nonprofits because that is the data they're drawing from. They'll see a large organization raising tens of thousands of dollars Following these specific best practices, and they feel like they have to produce something similar. And there is so much pressure inherent in that to hit specific engagement metrics, or reach goals, or process a certain number of donations. And when you and I talked about this, we really identified that the data available to those small nonprofits, and even more importantly, the best practices based on that data, make those small organizations feel like they're failing if the appeal they send doesn't perform the way they want. So, When we analyzed that data for our report, that data revealed that small nonprofits are winning in a lot of different areas, but many of them are still striving to hit numbers and use strategies that don't work for them. They're not able to celebrate their successes because all they see are these outside numbers that won't work for them. So, when they have data that is specific to them, it's much easier for them to start tracking their own benchmarks and setting their own goals and learning what can work for them instead of trying to do what works for Charity Water or Amazon or the other large organizations that they have historically looked up to.
0: I think what's really interesting about the way you frame that, you're, you know, the, what's getting lost oftentimes is people's idea of why they use the data and what are they using it for. And the question Mm. that people forget is who is the audience? And when we're talking about this idea of being able to mobilize money, you're talking about queuing in on everything that could be you know, when data is in, you know, narrative visualizations, you know, raw data form, those three come together and can kind of inspire explanations and engagement and enlightenment, and they can be a catalyst for movement. And I think that's the thing that, like you said, nonprofits have to kind of use all of those things because they're tapping into the humanity of what it is. And I think that's the part that, again, people don't realize how important storytelling is in that. And to your point, what mobilized you into action, you know, was the ability for you to connect to that human story at the end of it. So it's such an interesting concept about like, how is data used and why those big numbers, why to some degree, sometimes the 132 different data outcomes that can be called out in in genomes and things that are valuable to many, many people, but not to the nonprofits themselves, not to the ability that they can come in and tell their story and mobilize people in the way they need to it helps to tell other stories and i think that's what we all forget is it can't be one one reign you know across all it has to be who is the audience what is the role they're using what do they care about what are their pain points and that should be the thing that defines you know that kind of information and metrics so i totally get you on that adding the humanity back it's got to come through the nonprofits in that sense
1: what 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 was interesting the past few weeks in since the reports come out besides the fact that it's it's by all metrics, wildly successful. People care about this. Right. At the same time, the Fundraising Effectiveness Project released their fourth quarter report for 2022. And I was very intimately involved in that release. And it came out at the Association of Fundraising Professionals International Conference. And it was very fascinating because Corinne, we brought that report up with Chantal in one of our previous conversations. And it was so interesting because she was astounded by some of the donor retention numbers. Yet on the ground, one of the big criticisms that has come up, and I even had a, you know, diner conversation with one of our partners who's involved in it this morning about this very topic. And he basically says, Michael Buckley of the Cologne Group, is this type of data doesn't tell small nonprofits anything they don't already know. Right. And that's the key Difference, I think that we need to start shifting is we need to stop being observers and more actively guiding folks, too. But, uh, you know, that, that's just one kind of little deviation on a conversation I want to bring up is that this stuff has to have more of a clear point in what people are going to do with it. And the point
0: forward. has to be answering that that how and why, right? Yes. Like it, it, and I think that's the thing people realize too, is that, and maybe it is the same data. I mean, maybe, maybe data optimization here is actually about increasing the utility of that data. So it's like mm-hmm. same data for different purpose. But the whole point is it has to have a purpose. It has to have an audience. It has to be something that resonates with that receiving kind of party or person or whatever it be. So that you're actually in a position where you're actually building that story for them so the different same data can be different purposes but there has to be different purposes that take into account the how and the why of what you're trying to accomplish and i think that's something that we always forget and we blindly kind of just say these are the metrics you know how do you play into them so it's very interesting and it has to work for the grantees so you know i know you're both intimately familiar with this report and 1500 nonprofits overcraw like thousands and thousands of campaigns. Tell me some of these other significant findings because there's a lot of stuff in there.
2: Yeah, choosing one or two significant findings is going to be a real challenge for me. Um okay. So I kind of alluded to it already, but the biggest overall takeaway at least for me is that nonprofits, little nonprofits are outperforming their larger counterparts in some really amazing ways and I think my favorite example of this came from when we analyzed the average amount raised per email campaign. So, when we looked, the average nonprofit in enti- all nonprofits raises about $5600 per email campaign. And of course, we broke this down into large and small nonprofits, and we found that large nonprofits raise around $6500 per campaign, small ones raise around $3500 per campaign. And at the surface level, if you look just at those figures, it looks like the larger nonprofits campaigns are more successful, right? They're raising more money per email campaign. But when we took things a step further and calculated the average amount raised per email contact in a campaign, so the average number of people that received a particular email, we found something really wonderful. And we discovered that the average large organization... So remember, that's a thousand contacts or more per email raised around 88 cents per contact. And the small groups with 250 to 999 people raised more than $6 per contact. So at first glance, yes, it looks like larger nonprofits are raising more overall, but small nonprofits are doing a much better job connecting with their audience and inspiring them to give generously. And I think that tells a really beautiful story about the way smaller nonprofits are connecting with their audiences. And I hope that findings like that, and I mean, that's only one example, small nonprofits outperformed their larger counterparts in a lot of different areas. I hope that encourages smaller teams who feel that pressure to grow their list or hit the totals or whatever achieved by bigger organizations. They have a lot to be proud of.
1: I think one of the other interesting things that we did here that was special was we partnered with a uh, agency called Nonprofit Operating System. And we had them run through the Da Vinci model of open AI. So this is where the AI comes in, folks. Here's our <laughs> here's our red meat for for that. This is a tech, you know, focused conversation today. And we did actually analyze emotional sentiment of the subject lines and preview text. And this is where the importance of nonprofit data for nonprofits comes in because the words, the phrases, the things that people say are so specific to our sector. Even the emojis that people used are very highly specific to the audience that they're talking to. And so that was some of the other fun stuff was kind of what drove engagement. Abby, you know, before we kind of move into the larger questions of, Audience development and what these types of reports might be helping in the broader story that we're telling across, not just you know email, right? Like the broader focus of these types of of research projects. Let let's have a little fun though and talk about the AI side, the emotional, um, the emotional insights that we glean from the data. Do you want to give us a little bit of a overview of what happened there?
2: Yes. So Cherry and Koshi, the man that runs the nonprofit operating system came back with some subject line analysis, uh, some sentiment analysis, and then he even looked at some words and phrases that can either tank your engagement rates or improve them in subject lines and in preview text. And I had a blast reading through his notes and his findings. I was not particularly shocked to see that positive emotions have a tendency to inspire the best engagements. Although I know that I myself definitely fall into what I call rage donating sometimes. So if you are listening and you like me tend to respond to rage donating, don't do that. And your subject lines and preview text positive <laughs> feelings uh, perform better. So keep that in mind.
0: That's a really good term that I actually haven't
2: heard. Oh, yeah, it's. I gotta stop that oh rage uh, yeah, giving rage giving I mean
0: that's funny because I'm on the foundation you know side, so we don't talk about rage giving as much. <laughs> <laughs> But like, but like, I totally do that. Like on a personal level, I'm like, I am going to change the world with this one button. Corinne, this is why.
1: This is why our podcast is so fun because we're both going to be like, you do what in your world? No, no, no.
0: I do that personally, but I would love the the concept of like foundations rage giving. That's not. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Imagine,
1: imagine, uh, yeah, imagine like a a big a big foundation just going like, this is our rage (laughs) (laughs) gift Like, that'd be fascinating. keep going, Abby. Sorry, no, you're
2: good. <laughs> um, I I really enjoyed that because I know, especially with so much going on in the world, it's very easy to dwell on the problems that nonprofits are solving. When we now see that people respond not to the problems necessarily, but to the potential solutions to those problems, so I thought that was was really great. Hilariously, the three words that tank engagement are reminder, member and meeting. So if you're listening to this, I hope you take away that you should never ever send an email with the subject line, reminder, member meeting, because you will get terrible open rates. And then Cherian very eloquently noted in the report that nonprofits, I think, tend to default to sending non emotional subject lines. I'm sure we could have a whole episode on why that may be the case. But he really encouraged people to look at what the AI revealed about how people respond to emotional words and phrases and subject lines. And I hate using the phrase lean into but I can't think of a better one. I he would encourage people to lean into sending more emotional subject lines. It will help your engagement. And I loved that finding.
1: Yes. And and Corinne, I know I when we were discussing this this discussion yesterday mm-hmm. that I was gonna throw one question at you, but I'm gonna throw a different one
0: at you. Oh are because you because
1: you don't know <laughs> the answer to this one. We had to actually remove one word <laughs> in particular from the data set because it skewed the results so much. And This is a very loaded question, so I apologize, but I'm going to give you a oh, shot. No. Okay. What do you think the one word we had to remove was? And it's not like Tuesday. So
0: where was it? Like, like in, as a, in the subject word, line? In the subject if line.
1: This word, this one word, was in the subject line. It outperformed everything to such a degree. We're talking by like a thousand percent.
0: Oh, that so it's a good, a good line. I was thinking it was, it a, was bad a good word, word other, to okay, drive
1: on. engagement, but we had to remove it, and it's a I mean, funny I don't word. Know. What it's do you think word? that one word is?
0: Oh, I was gonna say it was something like urgent or something. Um, but if you are listening word? to
1: this podcast Ugh. at this <laughs> point, like go find where we've published it and like comment Ugh. on which word you think it is at this I... point. Corinne, what do you think it is?
0: I was gonna say something like urgent, but that's not the right. You said it's more funny, and so that's not funny.
1: It's not funny. That's it's not, not, funny not... urgent. At all. Isn't funny. No, no. I know. I, I, for our oh. listeners, I'll speed it up. It was cannabis. The word is cannabis.
0: Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> in in the header line, yep. people. The open rate was like a hundred percent. What? It was
1: so good. It what? was so good.
0: I don't. I don't, there's literally like zero chance I would have gotten that right. I know that's why I that. By the way, if that wasn't right, night, so that you guys have been like, what is she talking? Oh, if about?
1: she, if you got it out of the gate, I'd be more <laughs>
0: You'd have been so concerned well, for me as I, a human. I, like, Corinne, like, that's not appropriate on the
1: podcast. I think this does lead <laughs> into the next part of the conversation, okay, which is yes, the storytelling that you want to tell to the yes. audience. That audience who wants to know about cannabis really loves hearing about cannabis.
0: That's amazing. Well, then, yeah, digest- I mean. To, there's a top for every pot on those things. So, okay, let's talk about that. So different people need to tell different stories, funders, board, senior leadership programs. If people are listening now and say, okay, I'm not in the canvas business, but I want to start somewhere. What is your suggestion <laughs> on where to start?
2: I am going to take off my research hat and I'm going to put my marketing hat on, especially content marketing, because I tell everyone to do this all the time. So, If you are a nonprofit, you're trying to figure out how to tell stories to a bunch of different people. I want to encourage you to remember that different audiences don't necessarily require different stories. So instead of starting with the list of all of the people that you need to talk to and trying to come up with a story to tell each of them, do it backwards. Start with the story and then tweak it for different audiences. Um, I, that sounds very trite on its own. So I'll give you an example. I was on the board for a nonprofit here in my hometown, and we heard a story about a little boy who joined one of our summer education programs. And when he started, he didn't really speak. He couldn't read. He didn't engage with other kids in the program. He didn't he didn't engage with anybody. He was completely shut off. And at the end of the program, he was speaking. He was learning to read. He loved playing with other kids. He was always trying to help. He would hold doors. He was the line leader. He cleaned up toys. And he made all of these huge strides in just a few weeks. Now, I was on the board. So this story kind of punctuated the conversation about our strategic planning for the summer programs for the next year, but it really highlighted to us the importance of executing that strategic plan and doing it well so we could help other kids like, like him. But we used the same story in a fundraising appeal that funded those summer programs. And then we shared it with major donors at our big annual fundraiser and invited them to continue making a difference in students' lives like his. It circulated through the staff and the leadership at the nonprofit. And when we were talking to them, it was framed as a celebration of all of their hard work and the success that they've had. And it really reiterated that their hard work was making a difference. So it was just one story but we told it in lots of different ways to different audiences with different kind of slants to it. So just start with one story and then tell it everywhere. And then use that story to segue into the conversations you need to have with different groups. So if you are talking to your board, tell your board how they're making a difference and share that story as an example. Um, Motivate your donors to continue to be involved, encourage your staff and celebrate them. Use it for campaign-specific appeals. Don't stress yourself out trying to find a unique story for every audience. That is exhausting, and you will stress yourself out. Do it backwards. One story, lots of
1: audiences. That kind of brings up an interesting point because we're talking about research. We're talking about a lot of different things, and there's a big push to humanize data in our sector, but, but, but there's not clear action around it. And I I personally think that a lot of this comes down to philosophical questions around what we value and what we put cultural investment in. But especially when it comes down to the importance of storytelling, even for, for our report, Abby, we found one email and told a story around that one email, right, the most engaging email of 2022. So what role does humanizing data play when it comes to this?
2: So, I'm going to ask you a question, and I can see your face in my head when I ask this.:
1: You're allowed to do that. I guess she's allowed <laughs> to do that, Corinne. Yeah, go ahead.
2: Um, I have I've heard the phrase "humanized data" to talk about a lot of different tactics. Can you expand a little bit on what exactly you mean when you are talking about humanizing data?
1: So when I went through the philanthropic psychology course for the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy, they actually did outline some of the impacts of using Individual images or individual statistics versus like using a story to represent a larger impact. And I think when I think about it, it's humanizing data is getting back to the core point of why I joined the nonprofit technology sector in the first place, which is that data is simply a electronic representation of human relationships. That's it. That's the whole shebang for me philosophically. So when I talk about that, it's how do you get the person to come alive through these large data sets, these big numbers, right? All of this type of stuff. And that's why I love start with one story. But even when we were discussing things for creating the report, we approach data analysis differently too. So that's kind of how I would answer it. And I don't know if I did an, an adequate job for you, Abby, but that's, that's how I'm going to answer it.
2: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And this is a problem that we encounter in the nonprofit tech industry and I suspect it is a challenge in the nonprofit industry as well. So, I'll speak for myself, when I look at data, especially if I'm looking at very large data sets like the ones you and I looked over for this report, it is really easy for me to reduce the nonprofits represented in that data set to a monolith. I find it easy for me to forget that each data point represents real nonprofits, real people, real campaigns, real impacts. And those stories and experiences and those needs and dreams are reduced to a percentage point or a ratio or a graph. And I know this is something we encounter a lot in the nonprofit tech space, especially when we're doing research. And like I said, I imagine this is a challenge for nonprofits too, whether they're looking at benchmarks or their own donor data. It's really easy for them to make donors a monolith, not individual people. It's easy for me to make groups of nonprofits a monolith, not real life fundraisers and leaders and people who are changing the world. So I think you and I have talked about this kind of extensively and I have to be succinct, but there are two problems that I kind of see with this. So one, I think it makes us less empathetic. So when you and I are pouring over a spreadsheet with tens of thousands of rows, or if I look at a non, a big data set and I forget the organizations that are behind that data, it's so easy for me to say, "Ah, oh, well, uh, this best practice is what the data says we should do. And it's easy to forget that that. Best practice, even if it is backed by good data, may be beyond the reach of some of the people reading that research. So when I hyper focus on the results, I have to work really hard not to forget the real life people who will act on that research. So you you mentioned some of the recent data from the fundraising effectiveness project. So we'll pick pick a point. The most recent report shows that the number of individual donors is dropping, and it's dropping. Pretty rapidly. And it's really easy to panic. It's easy for us to place blame and point fingers and talk about the huge issues that the nonprofit industry wrestles with every day. But when we look at that data with empathy, we can start having really constructive conversations and we can ask, like, all right, individual donors are down. Why are nonprofits struggling with retaining and acquiring donors because they don't have the tools they need? Why don't they have the tools they need? Are donors burned out after the COVID-19 pandemic and all of today's unrest and economic uncertainty? How do we address that? Are the fundraisers burnt out and overwhelmed by everything they need to do? And if that's true, like how can we help? How can we solve those problems? So I really believe that interacting with data is only helpful if you bring empathy for the people that data represents to the table. And then I know you and I have talked about this too. The other issue I see is that not humanizing data can make us really lazy. It's easy for me as a writer to throw research out there without also sharing what nonprofits can do with it. So I can say something like, yeah, well, th- the data shows that Friday afternoons are the best day to engage your audience with email and just leave it there.
1: Which is it's, true, by the it, way. Which it is. is
2: true. That <laughs> it's much harder to say, Okay, well, data shows that Friday afternoons are good for engaging your audience, but no two nonprofits have the same audience, so that might not work for you. Use this as the basis of an experiment and then tell people, here's how to run an A-B test. Here's how to compare performance. Here's the next thing to try if your Friday email doesn't perform the way you want. And if you're a nonprofit fundraiser or a board member or a consultant, it's easy to say, yeah, well... Sending the same monthly update to our recurring donors is fine. It's not negatively impacting our retention rate. We don't need to do anything with it. While forgetting that the real people, the real donors on the receiving end of that repeated form email are slowly disconnecting from your cause. It's so much harder to say, hey, the data shows that our retention rate is okay, but let's take a deeper look at how our recurring donors engage with us anyway. Let's experiment with switching up the email. Let's talk to people and ask what they want from us. So I know you love data. I love data. Data is so useful, but it's only useful when you combine it with the real life humans behind it. We can't let data be a crutch and we can't let it rob us of our empathy. And we have to guard our connections very intentionally to the people behind those numbers.
0: I think that's actually really interesting because to your point and bringing back this little AI kind of concept too, is that like at the end of the day, the tone, the flavor, the context that only humans can provide is the thing that AI can't. That's something we have to feed it to be able to make it useful too. And Mm -hmm. so I I look at this and say, you know, when you say, don't rob us of our empathy, like, I think that's right. The connections, the people behind the numbers, like that's the thing that, that is unique to us. So I, I do love that point you just made let's talk about the capacity of nonprofits to really get into this I mean obviously in the land of you know being able to get this out and going everyone have infinite resources and be able to do it but what are the types of things that you would sort of call out to them to say you know here are tools out there or' You know, maybe start with that, and then I have a follow-up question for that uh, of what you would ask of grant makers. But let's maybe start with that that first kind of concept of just quick tools that you think are out there that can help.
2: I think perhaps the most available tool is simply a calculator. Uh, (laughs) I I know that sounds a little ridiculous. (laughs) That's like fire. I think it's. Uh, maybe it sounds a little silly because I am talking about a report that's full of data, but I would tell people who work for nonprofits, like, yeah, the benchmarks in this report are important and they're useful and they're a great place to start evaluating your own performance and a great place to start identifying opportunities to improve. However, your own data will be a more effective beacon for you if you track it correctly. So, yep, look at the industry average for click-through rates and open rates and engagement. But don't just stop there. Don't take my word for it when I say that you should send your donors an email on Friday. Look at your own numbers. Look at the email service provider you're using and look and see, okay, Abby says that you should try sending emails on Friday what happens when I send an email on Friday? Is it working? Don't say, okay, well, it looks like I have a pretty decent open rate compared to the rest of the industry. Ask yourself, how can I improve my open rate? What little tweaks and changes can I make? And sometimes that's as simple as calculating your own metrics on a calculator and just keeping track of them somewhere. Of course, you want to use tools that give you insight into those data points. It's really a pain to try to calculate your open rate by hand, Uh, but some of the really important indicators that you're doing a good job reaching your audiences, uh, those engagement metrics, and then things like average amount donated per campaign, average amount donated per contact, average amount donated per segment of contacts are all really valuable. And you can pull that regardless of what service you're using. And you can track your own progress using our research as a starting point, but building on it from there.
0: Awesome. And take that one step further. And now, you know, let's look at this idea of if you could give that same or give a piece of advice to the grant makers that are asking you to, you know, provide a lot of this information, if you could ask one thing of them, what would that be?
2: I'm gonna open with the caveat that I am most familiar with individual giving. I'm less familiar with the ins and outs of grant making and reporting to grant makers. But I do know that grant makers often rely really heavily and sometimes they rely solely on data to understand the impact that their grantees make with the money that they're, they're giving. And I think that has the potential to be really dangerous. Of course, data and reporting is important, But when a nonprofit has to hit benchmarks or report impact in a purely data-based way, it's really easy for grantors to lose sight of all of the nuances and all the challenges inherent in some of the work those people are doing. You can't reduce a nonprofit's impact to a percentage point without losing sight of the different challenges they face. And you can't look at a nonprofit that's hitting the benchmarks and hitting the milestones and performing really well and say with confidence that they are effectively serving their community. And then on the other hand, you can't look at a nonprofit that's not hitting those goals and say that they're failing. So if you're listening and you're a grant maker, uh, and you really do want to make an impact in the world, please don't rely solely on someone's progress towards an arbitrary milestone talk to them and humanize it and seek out information about the circumstances and the challenges a grantee is facing. Of course, you want to look at the data, but combine that data with real life human conversations. It's really the only way to get a complete picture of what's happening.
0: I was just telling Tim, this is like one of my most favorite conversations. We were like slacking behind the scenes. I was like, this is so fun. I wish we had a little bit more time, but we are unfortunately going to have to wrap up. And we do this little thing called rapid fire. It's just a way to like have fun and like get a little insight into you as a human and uh, encourage you to respond with the first thing that comes to your mind. So we've like three or four questions for you. You ready? Mm -hmm. All right. If you could switch places with any fairy tale character for a day, who would it be and why?
2: my favorite fairy tale character comes from a Russian fairy tale it's oh. called, uh, she's Vasilisa the Beautiful or Basilisa the Wise depending on who you talk to and she you really are
0: like a fan that's
2: amazing <laughs> I really hey, am I'm gonna uh, I have, this one up. <laughs> she meets Baba Yaga I was going to say
1: where's Baba Yaga and all this <laughs> she meets <laughs>
2: Baba Yaga and I actually have tattoos of Basilisa the Beautiful and Baba Yaga's house mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that fairy tale <laughs>
0: love it. And why, just in general, is that, what does it evoke for you?
2: Uh, so it is a pretty classic story about a... Fairly sheltered girl, Vasilisa, being given an impossible task. She has to seek out Baba Yaga, get her help. Baba Yaga is an inherently dangerous person. And Vasilisa is, of course, wise in and of herself, but she has a little magical talisman from her mother that also guides her. So it's a really cool example of a girl doing something that she is terrified of doing and doing it thoughtfully and carefully and coming out on top because of her wits.
1: So (laughs) Well, let's let's keep the literature conversation going then. And, you know, one of the favorite questions that we also ask here is about books, (laughs) what you're reading, slightly different spin on it this time, because I know you read a lot of different stuff, Abby. What's who is your favorite writer or book of like all time?
2: Oh, that's impossible for me to answer. So I'm a huge Tolkien nerd. I read The Silmarillion about every year. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he's, of course, up there. And then if I just need something to read quickly, I really love Billy Collins. He is an American poet that is just an absolutely stunning writer. He's amazing. Look him up. Billy Collins.
1: Billy Collins. All right. Okay, well, we'll round things out. Last question. If you had a magic wand Mm -hmm. and you can change something in our sector, what would it be?
2: I would get rid of the perception that nonprofits have to compete with each other for resources. I've seen so many beautiful things happen when two nonprofits that have historically kind of vied for what they consider the same resources, uh, and they come together and launch a shared campaign and just knock it out of the park. So I would love there to be more collaboration and less competition.
1: I think that's a worthy goal. Corinne, any final words before we round it out today?
0: Just a huge thank you, Abby. This was wonderful. I actually learned a ton, too. So I just appreciate you very much.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, I, I I know, folks, it seems kind of funny that I brought my coworker onto my podcast. But like, this is a great conversation. And there. this is because, Abby, one of the reasons I'm so thrilled to work with you day in, day out is because of the, the insights, the empathy that you have. It's such an enriching conversation that we had. And I want to thank you for joining us on the podcast and sharing more about you and your work. And I learned more about you too. So thank you.
2: Definitely. This is a ton of fun. I love talking about this stuff.
1: Well, if you listener want to learn more about Abby, you can head on over and check out the report at neon one.com. We'll put it also into the show notes. The reason it is readable is because Abby wrote it. and. So exciting to have her on the podcast today. Thank you so much for listening today, folks. And we'll see you next episode.
0: You can listen and download our episodes at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and of course, directly from our website at Flux.io. That's F-L-U-X-X.io.